Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending April 24th. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this week's podcast, you are going to hear us talking uh, to Mr. Toby Halligan in our regular politics segment about uh, the problem with Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, he's, uh, <laughs> he's released his new memoir and it's caused some ripples in the uh, coalition. And so we talked a bit about that. And uh, Michael Harden was in for Food Interlude as well, talking about apples, which I've never been a big fan of, but if you cook them, they're great. Uh, also, we got to chat about ISO privilege. What is it? Have you got it? I do. And uh, we got to talk about um, books that we've been reading. And, oh, God, it was fun to chat to Judith Lucy, whose uh, new stand-up special is out now. And for feature creatures, Ricky Lee Erickson brought us some record-breaking discoveries made during a recent deep-sea expedition uh, in the underwater canyons off Ningaloo in WA. And we chatted about resurrecting snacks. Marble chocolate's back! (laughs) No one cares. Triple R. The Prime Minister has the call. The opposition has a point of order. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Madam Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Madam Speaker. The level of interjections is far too high. Order. Order. Well, Toby Halligan's been keeping up to date with politics and the 29th Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Blair Turnbull, has been keeping himself busy. He absolutely has. And look, look, guys, Malcolm Turnbull has always been something of an open book. Well, now you can buy that book. <laughs> or if you're a staffer in Scott Morrison's office, you can just get your hands on a digital copy of it and widely circulate it throughout the party and the media until Malcolm arranges for his lawyers to point out that's a breach of copyright law and threatens you with a bit of a lawsuit, um, wow. which is exactly what has happened over the weekend. It emerged that one of Scott Morrison's senior staff had sent it out. One Liberal MP apparently received five copies of it. So clearly there were quite a few digital copies going around. It meant that on Sunday on ABC's Insiders, Maurice Payne was in the quite awkward position of having to repeatedly deny um, where she'd gotten it from. She wound up actually refusing to answer the question. So it does suggest that Scott Morrison's office um, was certainly interested in the book, something the Prime Minister in repeated interviews has said he wasn't interested in. So um, I think it'll just um, draw more attention to the contents of the book, some of which I don't think is surprising. Um, uh, It adds flesh to the bones of stories, if you like, that we probably already all suspected. I don't think it's a shock to to many of us to learn that um, Turnbull doesn't – particularly rate Tony Abbott, um, that he thinks he was literally crazy, like he actually describes him as crazy in the book. Um, But uh, some of the detail, for example, about Abbott's planned decisions to send troops into Russia to attempt to uh, recapture um, the remains of Australians after uh, a plane was shot down there, I think will... Um, it's One kind of general observation to make is it's interesting about how quickly now we get memoirs after people have left office. Like, typically, a lot of these conversations, a lot of the detail that's in this book is the kind of stuff that previous generations of leaders might not have reflected on quite so quickly, whereas it speaks to the collective venom that continues to shape dynamics within the Liberals, that we've gotten this while everyone really is still in office. Um, Perhaps of most interest to Turnbull's 
observations about Scott Morrison. So this is a quote. His cringeworthy, daggy dad persona is more exaggerated than it is conflated. But in net terms, it probably helped. Um, all that aside, however, the truth is that Labor lost the election, that the coalition after the August coup did not deserve to win. So that's kind of, I think that's something that we'll obviously be asked about. We'll never really know whether Turnbull um, uh, would would necessarily have beaten uh, Shorten. But um, what is perhaps more material is the uh, examples he highlights of Scott Morrison's semi-perpetual scheming, um, basically. It looks like Morrison, for example, was manoeuvring um, uh, uh, even earlier than we suspected, as opposed to, say, like last year when he's very much held his hands up and said, oh, no, I wasn't involved in any kind of coup of any kind. It, it turns out even when Joe Hockey was was the treasurer, Morrison was manoeuvring to get Turnbull into the position with the deal being that Morrison would then go on to become the prime minister. So there might be some awkward questions for, for ScoMo um, that come off this. So no doubt he'll use the daggy dad persona to avoid answering them. <clears throat> he uses, it seems to use language like, you know, he just goes for it. Right wing thugs. He says Greg Hunt was never liked and, at one particular moment, has never been more despised than during right. the spill. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You, you also, I mean, he, he, yes, absolutely. He, I, he, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said that you should judge a person by the quality of their enemies. And whatever <laughs> you think of Turnbull, um, by that metric, he, uh, the quality is very, very high. He. He's certainly, I mean, like, uh, he's, he's certainly not out to make any friends here. I guess there is, uh, uh, from from my point of view, and I suspect the point of view of many Triple R listeners, it's it's a delightful read because it confirms suspicions many of us might have had about uh, a lot of um, federal politicians. Um, there's stuff about Hunt as well. Apparently, Hunt also regularly uses vulgar language too, <laughs> like a quote. <laughs> the descriptions of um, Dutton as well have been kind of quite damning haven't they well yeah like he describes Dutton's desire to be um the prime minister as narcissistic and delusional yeah. um just <laughs> I mean that's not really he's really not holding back there is he like that's the um, um but uh, I think that's also probably an accusation that could be applied to many in federal politics um all of this has actually led to a move in the New South Wales Liberal Party to actually have Turnbull permanently punted from the party. Um, apparently there were um, there was a proposal that's been circulating over the weekend. Um, uh, exactly whether that happens or not um, what remains to be seen. One final kind of, th- there are a couple of other final areas. His observations about the media, again, it's not a surprise. He has problems with News Corp, mm. but the degree of um, uh, h- how close some ministers were with News Corp. He points out that Scott Morrison had a, an appalling reputation for leaking, like he writes about a conversation with Matthias Corman where Matthias was reportedly furious at Scott Morrison for leaking something and indeed said, we have a treasurer problem. I just really I just really wanted to quote that to try to explain <laughs> <laughs> um, um, But uh, Abbott apparently would leak the decisions of Cabinet before they'd actually been confirmed, which in another era of Australian democracy I think people would regard with shock, but, I mean, in this day and age doesn't seem that serious. Um, really compared to everything that's happening. 
But he also, in 2009, um, talks about um, his struggles with mental health and the fact that he was on antidepressants and um, was having suicidal thoughts and, and ideation. So I think that that degree of candor is 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 to be you know admired. Like again, whatever you might think of Malcolm Turnbull, he he he's a pretty he's pretty upfront. Um, and I think it's good that he is talking about, you know, uh, the mental health burden that politics um, uh, can place upon people in such an honest and open way. So, yeah, I mean, if you want a copy of A Bigger Picture, you can go to stores or perhaps write to someone in Scott Morrison's office and aim for a digital. And, That's right. And just really quickly, it's, is this a memoir? Is this, un- is this unlike usual political memoirs? Because I've never heard of a political party wanting to push to have someone – um, you know, kicked out of the party because of public and publishing a memoir. They're usually quite gossipy. Look, that is true. I think it does have precedent, I would say. I mean, Mark Latham's diaries directly after he – I think it depends on how acrimonious the the, the leaving of the party has yeah. been. Most political memoirs are dull as dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> been too many of them and so many of them are basically written by people who are effectively aiming to get senior roles whether it's ambassadorships or right. the leadership of a whole range of different kinds of organizations and the way you get that is by being polite and playing the the game um if you like uh mark latham certainly didn't um and i don't think turnbull's going to be relying on getting any um public gigs from his colleagues um he's always been insular from criticism in many ways from News Corp and his peers by the fact that he is incredibly independently wealthy. And I think that's always been something that has annoyed a lot of them, to be honest, to be, to be fair. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I think it is an unusual memoir in that respect. But, um, yeah, I, I, I guess well, he's probably going to be spending a lot of time on Twitter as opposed to, you know, as an ambassador or something like that. Yeah, and it's 704 pages. Uh, so there's lots in there. Recommended retail price, $55. I'm still halfway through volume one of Rudd's two volumes, so I'm a few prime ministers behind. Uh, anyway, Toby, thanks heaps for uh, staying abreast and talk to you soon. Thanks, folks. Cheers. Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Well, here to talk food, it's our isolated Epicurean, Michael Harden. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you going? Yeah, terrific. Yeah, <laughs> as we all are. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, what's, what's the goss in your world? Oh, just, uh, you know, kind of hanging out, cooking a lot, cooking, eating too much. I'm sort of, I'm quite, actually was thinking I was quite freaked out that I've got such a um, a fridge full of food all the time. It sort of scares me every time I open the door because normally I'm kind of out the whole time. So I've got, you know, condiments and some milk and a bunch of wine in there. <laughs> now for actual food that I'm having to cook. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a brave new world. Yeah, right, including apples. Including apples. Like, yeah, I just – I was thinking about, you know, because we're all cooking so much at home and everything and, like, I think what's really seasonal at the moment, I was talk- thinking about apples, which are probably my favourite fruit. And um, sort of did a little bit of a you know, deep dive into apples, and they are this amazing fruit. They've been with humans for we've been cultivating them for between about four thousand to eight thousand years. They don't know particularly exactly when they started cultivating, so we've got a long history with the apple, and uh, it's one of those fruits that we wouldn't let wouldn't really exist 
in its current form without human intervention. So we've got this like quite simpatico relationship because um, apples are a very interesting fruit in that this, they're called a, an extreme heterozygote which obviously you all know what that is. So, mm. but I'll, for anybody that doesn't, I'll explain. Yeah, and um, but they they um, it means that the seeds of an apple, um, all the seeds in an apple will produce a different type of apple tree. So it's like you know you you can't just plant like a, get a golden delicious apple and plant one of its seeds in the ground and grow a god. It'll it'll plant something else because they don't reproduce the same as their parent tree. Because oh. it's sort of like it's an old evolutionary thing, so that they sort of protect protect themselves from pests. Because if you've got one type of tree growing, like one variety of apple growing in a, over an area, one pest can get in that that tree is susceptible to, and it can wipe the whole lot out. So it's got this evolutionary thing. So that God, you never what, know what, what wily rebellious buggers. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're can quite you, amazing. Can you can you do you know anything about? Uh, how someone can farm or grow golden delicious continually if the spreeds are spouting all different well, sorts? All, it all comes down to grafting. So this is where the human intervention comes in. This is why, why we can have particular varieties of apples and orchards can grow particular varieties of apples because it's all about rootstock and grafting. So you can graft onto any tree um, onto any rootstock, the particular tree you want to grow, and it will grow perfectly, but you just can't propagate it from seed. Huh. There you go. Goodness gracious. Yeah, it is. It's a quite it's quite an amazing um amazing thing that way. So it's like, you know, and there's over like there's probably about seven and a half thousand varieties of apple um in the wild. It's sort of it first came from Kazakhstan and um was sort of and then sort of went to Europe on the Silk Road and then came to went to America when with the pilgrims came to Australia with the first fleet like you know in every every time it's sort of like it's the sort of it's sort of um it's got this symbiotic relationship with humans in order for it to sort of survive as a species seven and a half thousand might be a bit much might be a little bit much you'd need a bigger greengrocer <laughs> But, uh, See, yeah, I, I think it's interesting it's your favourite fruit. I've always struggled with apples. I eat them almost because I go, oh, they're good for me, yeah. Ugh, you oh. know, but I, I eat them with a bit of resentment, uh, maybe because yeah. they are because you can get them anywhere. They don't feel special. What do you do with an apple to make it special? Like what is your favourite apple dish or some of your favourite well, apple dishes? I just, I love things. I love the way that just merely by cooking it, it turns into something like, you know, because it concentrates all the sugars. Mm. So it becomes something really delicious. So just by, you can like halve an apple and chuck it in the oven and and put a bit of sugar on it. And it's like, you know, quite a delicious soft dessert with, you know, serving with cream or whatever. The other thing that I love to do that um, it's a um, Stephanie Alexander trick, which was it's when you, if you, if you eat meat um, and if you were um, roasting pork you just can chop in like all you need to do instead of kind of going through the whole apple sauce thing you can just chop a whole bunch of granny smith apples in half and like half an hour before the, the pork finished roasting you just chuck them all in the pan with the juices and they turn into these sort of beautiful caramelized sweet kind of accompaniments to the Ooh, to the meat yum Ooh, yum where do yeah. you stand where do you stand on apple juice apple cider sparkling apple uh, I'm pretty snooty about apple cider. <laughs> might, might surprise you to know. Um, I kind of like, you know, the, the sort of normal mass-produced cider in Australia is, you know, rubbish. 
Yeah. Um, but there are more and more like sort of the, the I like the kind of French versions of it and some of the English scrumpies and things like that that are more sort of clean and dry. Um, mm. And that's you know that, that's sort of the, the the type of cider that I'm really like. And it's interesting that cider was one of the reasons that the apple survived because it was like it was it wasn't really an it, um, apples weren't really an eating fruit until sort of about the 19, 1900s when they just they worked out all the whole grafting thing. So it was more they had apples around so that they could make booze. So that was like it's it it always endears itself to us in some way. Wow. What about the criss- so, the crisscross apple? How do you feel about that? The the not a, a half apple. Yeah, I don't know. It's sort of like it's like decaf coffee. It's like eat an apple, don't eat an apple. Yeah. You know, drink coffee. Don't <laughs> don't <laughs> don't but um, yeah, but it's sort of like the the. the the different, the other thing that's really interesting about it is like when you come to, I was think, I hadn't thought about this before, but when you go into a greengrocer, the apple is really the only um, item in that store that's really sold by variety. Like a couple of other fruits are, but like at any time you'll go into a greengrocer and there's five different varieties of apples. You know, there'll be a Fuji and a Pink Lady and a Granny Smith and all of that sort of stuff. But everything else, you don't get five different varieties of broccoli or even oranges. You know, there might be one or two. So it's kind of, it is part of our life. We don't realise how integral it is in our life that we can sort of, we go in and we just expect to be able to, you know, have five um, varieties of apples to choose from. We're like, oh, I'll get that one because it's more tart and better for cooking and I'll get that one because it's a really delicious eating apple and that sort of stuff. What is it about, um, like, say, Granny Smiths that are good for baking and things like that? What is it about the different types of apples for different types? Well, they have the the Granny Smith in particular, which, by the way, is an apple that was invented in Australia. Oh, good on us. Yes, so Aussie Aussie. Um, and but it's um because it's tart and it's and it's uh it has high sugars that but only come out when you cook them but it also the good thing about a granny smith apple is that it holds its shape like a lot of apples will collapse under the heat and become quite mushy whereas a granny smith is perfect for things like apple pie and apple tarts and things where you want slices on the top that are going to maintain their integrity That's it. So if we see, if you see an historical drama where like a an emperor is eating an apple, it's fake news. It was only a couple of hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's sort of like they, they are always, there's always been varieties that have been able to be eaten before that, but it's sort of like, you know, you never knew what it was going to be. So mostly it was sort of like it was there for it was there for the booze. And what cool. do you what do you reckon the number one apple ISO dish is that people should be cooking right now? Well, you know, I like I like my pork and I like my pork and apple dish, but you know that that's not going to suit everybody. Um, so you know, it's just sort of like go ahead and you know do the apple crumble if oh, you want to yeah. really feel good about yourself. It's like I just you know that whole beautiful brown sugar um, cinnamon kind of combination. It's sort of like it really can't be beaten in terms of you know if you've started if you're getting a little bit down in isolation and want to make yourself feel better without thinking about the fact that you're going to turn into uh, probably an obese diabetic. <laughs> well, um, the apple crumble is the way to go. I, I look forward to you bringing one in when we next meet face-to-face. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It'll be there. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. All right, thanks. Bye. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Uh, it's quite a beautiful day in, in Venice Bay yesterday. Um what was it? Was it was all right where you guys are? Yes, yeah, sunny, very sunny, beautiful. Yeah, 
so I took advantage of that uh, and late in the afternoon uh, popped me put me togs on, put me wetsuit on and had a little little dip in the ocean. Oh, what a dream. Oh, it really was. I mean, the ocean looked so terrifying and treacherous. Like there was so much white water. Like it was, yeah, lots of waves and stuff. But I was just like, I just want to get in and have a, a little dip. And like when I go in, it's like I go in waist height and then that's enough for them when the waves come in. I kind of, you know, I just like to be able to stand up. Yeah, no, have, if you don't know the water well, it's probably clever. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, also because it was so cold, it was like you had to just took a while to, you know, adjust um, to the water. But anyway, but it was like that thing where it doesn't matter how cold the water is, it's still like once you get used to it, it's amazing. And it was just so... Oh man, it just made me feel so good, um, in, in, invigorated, and all the words that go with that, and it was great. And it just makes me think. I reckon being able to go for a swim in the ocean or anywhere really, I think, is probably the height of isolation privilege, of yeah. ISO privilege. Um, and I'm very much aware of it, but I know I'm interested to know what. Uh, what are other things you see as ISO privilege? Uh, like if you, you know, what have your neighbours got or what have your friends got that you don't have that you wish you had? It's so funny uh, how fast the simplest things in life, you know, my friendship group are being lauded over other people. Like I've got a friend who moved house just in time for this and it just has this massive backyard, like just a beautiful, and so she's out there constantly doing yoga every every time I talk wow. to her she's like just doing some yoga in the backyard just doing some gardening just some baking in the backyard I live in a uh, a unit like I you know obviously it goes without saying we're all lucky to have what we have um mm. but in terms of the hierarchy of those privileges that you have suddenly having a backyard is like it just feels like she lives in a different kingdom to me yeah totally it's like and even oh sorry go Daniel no no I, I it's just I feel like we lucked out having a baby when we did. Yeah. Uh, so, A, because, you know, public hospitals in Australia were told, mothers were told they, you know, were going to be discharged between as little as four to six hours uh, because of COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, and and then another thing also is just having uh, – Having a baby now, I think Jesse's a bit happy because it means that now no no strangers touch the baby. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be paranoid, new new parents. Um, this is fire once when I visited a friend um, who just had their newborn baby a couple of years ago. The, the the partner made me put on gloves to hold the baby for the first time, and I was no no judgment. You know what I mean? Whatever whatever gets yeah. you through that first few stages. Yeah. But I did think at least now you have every excuse when you're that first time parent to be the extra paranoid. You know, please totally. put on a mask and gloves if you're going to come near me. Yeah, it's fully. I know. The old politicians kissing babies. I feel like that's over. No, no. Yeah, well and truly. It's, an it's so good. Uh, we have had a, a couple of texts um, in. Um, ISO privilege is a place in the country. It's so true. Oh, and I, yeah. Like I feel like I'm – I really am 
yeah, one of the luckiest people around, I think. Um, oh, and then another one, having a separate room to your to work in, not your bedroom or your lounge room. Oh, that is so true. Absolutely, obviously, you know that that one day that we did it from from Collingwood, and um, and I had to do it in the in the lounge room, and I was just sitting on the couch with the computer on the coffee table, and my back was like we're an hour in, I'm like, oh my god, my back's going to be ruined by the end of this. But um, so having a separate room, that's pretty great, especially if you're living with people. You know, yeah, I've got lots of friends in share houses who are who are um have been lucky enough to be able to work from home, but they've said they're going a bit mad because they wake up, walk from their bed to their desk in their bedroom and sit down and go, yeah. oh, this is this is my life in five feet now. Like this, that's all I've got. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's weird when UGG boots signify business attire. Yeah, totally. <laughs> have you got your UGG boots on? I do. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I honestly, oh, my God, they're both holding their Ugg boots up to the camera. It's disgusting. Ugg boots, I don't want to see the bottom of you disgusting Ugg boots, Jess. Oh, yeah. Brent, I'm out in the bush, yeah, mate. Yeah, you can tell. Stop it. Sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with the bottom of there's your Ugg boots. There's another text saying reliable internet as well is a bit of a privilege. Totally. I think that's true. Oh, totally. um, I actually don't um, know who I'm dressing up for at the moment. Like, you guys are fair enough wearing pyjama pants and boots, but I don't know why I'm getting – I honestly don't know why I'm getting dressed at the moment to come into the studio. So, um, maybe I've got to knock it down a notch. I, Mate, I am completely dressed. I, 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 I trousers and my collared shirt, and I, it's, just the, it's just the Ugg boots because I can't find socks early in the morning. <laughs> It's too, you know, I don't want to wake Kath up, but the Ugg boots are there. So it's just easier to put my Ugg boots on, Fair keep enough. my feet warm, you know. Yeah. That's another privilege that I have, that I have Ugg boots to oh, put on. I think you're, you've got so many privileges. I think your other privilege is the fact that you have a partner that walks in to your office at 7.30am every morning and brings you a hot steaming cup of coffee from your good coffee machine. It yeah, kills me. <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a listener who lives on 79 acres of gorgeous native bush oh. with a one-acre garden. They bake their own bread, eat their own produce, play games, and all the while watching Wedgetail Eagles soar. Oh. <laughs> Is that real? Is that a real? Yeah, that's just be real. That's so amazing. Oh. Like, that's a dream. That's what I missed, like a, some some raptors. That's all I need. To, <laughs> just some to, raptors. Have, have the Start heart. your own bird show. Yeah, that's what I want. Got everything else except for the, except for the raptors, you know. Melbourne's own Triple R. I'm bringing in a, a new segment called What Have You Been Reading in This Pandemic? Um, <laughs> might change the name later, given... Um, Whatever's current circumstances are, um, I and when I say reading, um, <clears throat> for me personally, I mean what audio book am I listening to? Um, because I found uh, it's been <laughs> really um, helpful because I've got like these wireless headphones now. I'm like, I can. It's so freeing. I can oh. do so many. Oh wow. Things. You can pull out like, Aga Panthers and listen to a audio yes. book. Yes, it's the, that's one of the main things. It's um, clean the kitchen and dig out Aga Panthers whilst listening to an audio book. 
um, and it's been it fills up a lot of time and I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, so I have been listening to I was, it was Tony, it was I was really disappointed because I finished um, my book the other day and it's like it's a Stephen King novel and I I just I love Stephen King. Um, Does he do the reading for the audiobooks? No, they get proper like actors. Oh wow. Which makes it really entertaining. Um, like I think it you know um, yeah, they're really talented. So it's like really different character voices and 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 stuff. So it's um, makes it really fun to listen to. Um, so I've been listening to a, a novel that he released a few years ago, and it's just kind of this, um, you know, kind of a murder mystery type thing where there's a retired detective, and there was one case that he never solved, and the guy who. <clears throat> um, who murdered all these people taunts him, like writes him a letter going, oh, you never caught me. And then it's just this whole, you know, finding out who did it and all that kind of stuff. And it was just like, oh, it's just, you know, a bit of entertainment really. I feel like Stephen um, King's perfect for an audiobook in that sense. Like his, yeah. his books are sometimes kind of like radio plays, like the way that they're the characters speech and stuff, uh, speak. I just it, it goes to such an extraordinary length to develop characters in, in his, in his books, I think. Um, and that, I think, yeah, I think that's what makes it so good. Um, but I was so disappointed. Like I got to the end and was like, oh no, I finished my book and now I've got to, I don't know what I, you know, I really enjoyed that. I don't know what to listen to next. And then like two days later, I get an email going, oh, if you enjoyed that, then you might enjoy <laughs> this. And turns out the book that I listened, listened to was the first in a trilogy. Oh, oh, sweet. What a dream. Come on. So I started the next one yesterday. If people, if, if people saw you murdering Agapanthers while listening to a murder, a Stephen King murder, would they observe that you're up to different parts of the story? Like do you work slower or you're paying attention? Or? <laughs> no, no, no. I keep them keep them separate. Oh, do I? Okay. That's, I'll have to um, might investigate that myself. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I got caught up. Oh, um, uh, there's a trilogy that's found its way into my life because you know how much Jesse loves Call the Midwife. Yes. I was like, what is this Call the Midwife? Anyway, anyway, it's based on a book uh, from a – it's a memoir from a nurse who was working in the 50s and it was only published in 2002 uh, and so it took nine years to adapt and the creator died six months before the first episode aired. Oh. But um, – Anyway, I've been reading it, and it's quite—it's really—it's quite beautiful and oh. and fascinating. And there's a bit where she says that the nurse, she said nothing was more sexy than a nurse's outfit in the mid-century, and uh, she said the nuns just didn't realise how sexy we were. Did that make you go and Google <laughs> mid-century nurses for a while? <laughs> well, did you? <laughs> Well, that's what I mean. The whole show is about me, so yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, and but it's it's you know, there's it goes through all the different uh, births and and you know, like formaldehyde came in 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 the show, but uh, the, you watch the show and it's like, oh yeah, all these people are real. Oh wow, uh, you know, chummy. Does it, no one knows the show, do they? No, but that's oh, okay. I have I have seen it. Um, yeah. 
but, not, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's just sating some curiosity. I was also um, looking into uh, the book about that spawned the Ned Kelly film, um, which is our – oh, God, it's a Robert Drew book. It's called our uh, – Oh, come on, Daniel. Anyway, it will come to me. Our sunshine. And, um, Just like the song. Yeah, yeah. And and he, there's a travelling circus in there at Glen Rowan during the last stand. And I'm like, oh, is that far-fetched? And it was also on the film, Ned Kelly. And then I dug into it. There was actually a travelling circus. Oh, my God. Oh. Did yeah, any and of the, the panthers in the travelling circus escape? No, but the the book too far away. The, the book yeah, okay. the book does have Ned Kelly uh, pacing up and down, uh, just as the lion is. <gasps> oh, mm. had the drama. Anyway. Yeah, um, I've been. I I I met a kind of a mutual friend at a, at a friend's party recently. Him and I had never met before, and I discovered that he was quite a serious surfer. And I discovered this as I was telling him that I had been trying to learn to surf, which kind of is an embarrassing conversation when you find that someone can really surf and you, and then mm. you have to be like, oh, oh, I just have this giant foam board that I try and stand up on. And it was just an awkward situation. But to be fair, he was quite kind about the whole thing and uh, was encouraging of, I guess, mine and particularly Andrew's obsession with being in the water, which we've had for a long time, but trying to surf and he suggested to me that I read um, the memoir for the William Finnegan's memoir and William Finnegan's a New Yorker, a writer for the New Yorker and he released a memoir which won the like, Pulitzer Prize in 2016 for autobiography uh, and it's called Barbarian Days of Surfing Life and from what I gather this is like the Bible for surfers so when it came out it's kind of the book I'd imagine you know when Shantaram came out and um, people you'd see people walking around with that under their arms and like every backpacker had Shantaram under their arms I feel like this is the book that every surfer had under their arms in 2016 and obviously I knew nothing about it and um, he's like read that because it's about it's about this obsession with surfing but also kind of this connection to water and waves and uh, so I so I bought that and I've been reading it and it's been this extraordinary escape. I found it really difficult to watch screens recently and uh, it's it's a book that I would have hated for this guy to have written when he was the 25-year-old surfer that's featured a lot in the book but now yeah. he's kind of written as a 60-something-year-old with all the perspective of time. It doesn't come across as like gross young guy out searching the world, surfing strange places in Southeast Asia, like, you know, to find the best wave, which could be really, you know how that could be the worst thing ever, but it's actually quite beautiful. And and, and he grew up in California uh, just as surfing was kind of coming about. And so the way he describes the start of surf culture and then he moves to Hawaii as a child and the way he talks about Hawaii he uses kind of the lens of surfing to give you this history of places, which is really fascinating. And uh, and then he kind of goes on this, you know, journey for 10 years in an era that is so foreign. Like not only can we not travel or do anything right now, this was the 70s. So he's, you know, getting ships to little islands in the middle of nowhere to surf waves for a month and, uh, you know, just this idea that you could kind of basically hitchhike your way around the world turns up in, you know, South Africa, apartheid South Africa and ends up teaching there. And But you get this kind of history of places mm. um, that is so 
cool and in depth and not too white guy turning up. Like I was when I got to a chapter, you know, he's like, Oh, my dream was to go to these little Polynesian island and surf this wave. You're like, Oh gross, this is gonna be like white dude in the seventies turning up at a and not getting the culture. But he has this really he's quite a smart guy and he kind of has this really um I don't know. Like he's very conscious of who he is and his privilege the whole way through. Like you never, it's not, it's not gross in that way. And he spends some time in Australia and it's so sad. I'm like, I'm that loser Australian who gets excited when someone from another country talks about our country. Yeah. Uh, And then he describes seventies Australia. It's so, he's so taken by Australians, but he's also so horrified by how brutal and macho the surfing culture is here, how organised it is. Like we have surf life saving saving clubs and uh, how badly the men in Australia in the 70s treat women. And there's all these interesting observations that he makes and you're like, oh, wow, that's brutal but fascinating. Um, But more than anything, he spends probably a third of the book just describing waves. And I thought – at first, I thought, I'm, this is going to kill me. But by the end of it, I could spend three pages reading the description of one wave and be, like, totally glued to it, And which I think, yeah, is kind of an extraordinary skill. Yeah. 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 Does yeah. it make you want to go to Hawaii or any of the places? Or yeah. are they on your bucket list? It, I mean, it, it does, except that I'll never – it actually makes me think that he'd hate that I'm trying to surf because he makes it pretty clear that you're never going to learn to surf if you didn't – properly if you never if you didn't start when you're a teenager and he's a little it's a bit kind of dismissive of the way that surfing has become this mass cultural you know like it's sold out it's everywhere mm-hmm. uh and so I feel I kind of finished went I think you'd hate me but uh <laughs> <laughs> but it does it, 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 at a time when you're stuck at home and I can't even go to the beach it was just so cool being able to read about Traveling the world mm. and being in water and yeah, it was a total total escapism, which was cool. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait to not surf in the future. Triple <laughs> <laughs> R. Judith Lucy is a broadcaster, best-selling author and comedy superstar of the stage and screen whose stand-up show Judith Lucy vs. Men toured nationwide for 18 months before now being immortalised in a new special on Amazon Prime. And Australia's sweetheart and passionate Triple R subscriber joins us on the line now. Judith, welcome back to Breakfasters. Oh, good morning, everyone, and thank you for that. Largely fanciful introduction. (laughs) I do my best. It means a lot. (laughs) Um, You have a podcast called Overwhelmed and Dying. What's it been like to be so far ahead of the curve? Zeitgeist is my middle name. (laughs) Um, I'm always ahead of the curve. Uh, My next podcast will reflect what I've been doing during the pandemic and will simply be called Drinking, Crying and Masturbating. Um, I will actually plug the fact that uh, the podcast, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. We recorded it last year, but, of course, with a title like that, weirdly, it has struck a bit of a chord with some people, but... I did want to say that the last episode comes out, I think it's today, and it look, it's a nice one to listen to because it's the one where I go snorkelling at Ningaloo Reef and we chat to Tim Winton, and it's kind of a nice thing to listen to at the moment to remember that, you know, both the natural world and Tim Winton are still here and will be here at the end of this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, Now that it's upon us, how are you extending yourself in isolation, if at all? 
extending myself. Well, you know, it's upskilling. I guess so. Yeah. No, I'm just doing a lot of drinking and weeping. I'll be honest, yes. the self-pleasuring has tapered off. But I'm doing a lot of weeping about nice things. You know, like earlier this morning you were talking about the people in Italy clinking champagne glasses and stuff like that. Yes. Oh, my God, that sends me off. And frankly, can I say to you, Daniel, mm. that if your partner's mother wants to butcher the last post on Anzac Day in her driveway playing a horn. I say more power to her. All right, And I fine. got teary when I heard that. You leave that woman alone. She wants to get out there with a gazoo. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the spirit that made this country great. All right. I was just trying to pretend. I didn't want to make a scene or upset people, but you're right. It's, you know, if you can't do it, then, you know, we're not, uh, we can't let them win. Australia uh, is the country of give it a crack. We yes, don't exactly. Care if you do it badly. <laughs> Look at all uh, our careers. Well, that's right. Uh, what about uh, the, you know the show's Judith Lucy versus Men? Oh, what's the what's? Oh, well, that's what I, I was worried you would say that. I was concerned. It did. I did predict that you would dismiss why we're here but well, uh i mean it's a look watch it as a historical artifact <laughs> and remember the good old days where people went to theaters and yeah. uh you know we could sit next to each other and laugh that's the, that's the thing. Can I actually, there's a great little podcast out at the moment that a wonderful woman called Maz, who used to work at the Opera House, well, hopefully she will work at the Opera House again one day, has put together called um, Around the Traps. And she speaks to all these amazing crew people like production managers and stage managers. And they've all got such great stories. And, you know, it's a reminder that it's not just performers who are screwed while this is going on. So many crew are screwed as well. And there was an amazing um, episode with the wonderful Kate Mulvaney and they were talking about theatres being haunted. And anyway, it just led to this fantastic conversation about how incredible live performance is because the audience is different every night and, you know, there's absolutely nothing like it. And it's such a nice thing to listen to at the moment, even though I, I wept like a baby when I listened to it. But it just reminds you of how important theatre is. So really, I mean, yeah, watch it for me, but watch it for the audience, really. <laughs> what do you miss the most about performing, Judith? Laughter, Sarah. <laughs> just laughter. Oh, well, kind of everything I just said. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm sure Geraldine can totally agree with this. There mm. is something incredible about doing something, even though the show is more or less the same, it's a different experience every single night. And the relationship you enter into with the audience is unique. And what happens one night will be completely different from what happens the next night. And the audience is just a much a part of that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. like a great show is I'm obviously, hopefully I've done a good job, but the audience is just as much a part of why a show is great. And, you, yeah, I really miss that. You have um, quite an intimate relationship, I guess, with the audience at times. Like there is a, quite a bit of um, chatting with the audience and for someone uh, like you, and I know your approach to stand-up, do you find it um, a bit terrifying talking to the audience because you, you just kind of don't have as much control? I love it. 
Great. I really, really love it. And I guess, you know, one of the advantages to being, let's be frank, a hack, someone <laughs> who's been around for a very long time, is that um, a lot of people that come and see me, you know, we've kind of grown up together. So, I mean, I think anyone who knows anything about me knows that, yes, I do tend to be pretty personal. I do tend to talk a lot about my life. And I feel that when I talk to the audience, they get a chance to tell me about their lives. And, again, it's all part of the – I sound like a wanker, but it's all <laughs> part of the relationship, and I love it. I really – yeah, I'm, and I miss it. Yeah. You're also a bit of a romantic – uh, which comes across in the show. I was wondering if you had any sort of breakup songs or music that you lean into uh, d- during, you know, these personal upheavals. Uh, no, I tend to go more the other way. I tend to go more get drunk, dance to Lizzo. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's generally my approach. I'm, I'm not a kind of a, you know, I'm doing so much crying anyway that when I actually consciously put on music, I try and make it quite up. Can I say, though, because I am single and I do live alone, my washing machine broke down the other day <gasps> and the sheer thrill of having the Fisher and Paykel repairman in my bathroom <laughs> for 45 minutes. Listen, buddy, if you, if you happen to be listening, just know that we will always have the pandemic and my clock drain hose and I will treasure those memories forever. Oh man. That's yeah, I look forward to the adaptation of that. That's a very Mills and Burnish. Uh and and what what about uh what do you want to do next? Like when it's when it's all when you can leave the house. What do you Make reckon you money? <laughs> <laughs> Totally. I think like a lot of artists, look, I'm actually really lucky because the weekly starts again next week on the ABC, so uh, that will be good for the next few months. But, yeah, that money would be good. But I think like everyone, it's just the really simple things, like the thought of being able to go to a bar or a restaurant or a pub mm-hmm. and have a drink with my friends without Zoom <laughs> will make me so happy just to be able to see people in the flesh. Uh, yeah, I can't. I cannot wait for that. That and performing—they're the two big ones for me. Um, Sex would be good. <laughs> You've got that covered yourself, though. Well, it's and and look, I am an amazing lover, Geraldine. But um, you know, my right hand is incredible. But it would be nice to involve another human, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it would also be absolutely remiss of us not to uh, bring up April Amnesty, um, and. Uh, just you know the role of Triple R in the community and uh, and life in general. Can you can you blow just a little bit of smoke before you say goodbye? Nah. <laughs> um, look, I just feel I always give the same answer to this question, but yeah. I think it's probably more important now than ever. I mean, especially as someone who did not grow up in Melbourne, like I come from WA. From the moment I started listening to Triple R. I felt like I was part of a community and I felt like I was part of Melbourne. And obviously people are banging on a lot at the moment about community and connection, but it is so important. And especially, and I have to say, as someone who's living alone, seriously, I'm about to blow a lot of smoke up your ass, even though you hate your mother-in-law, Daniel, and you want me to play the last pose. Um, 
you know, to actually be able to wake up every morning and listen to you guys is fantastic. And I think radio actually touches people in a way that very few things can at the moment. And, you know, it's sort of like what I was saying about my relationship with my audience. I feel like I've got a relationship with the radio station and I feel like a lot of people who listen to Triple R and who subscribe feel the same way and I just don't think it can be, you know, overstated at the moment that that's just helping me get through my day. So if you are in a position to give this amazing station some money, well, do it. Mm. Well, we can't thank you enough. Your stand-up special, Jeff Lucy versus Men, is on Amazon Prime. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's this Friday. Judith, thanks heaps. And stay thanks, safe. guys. Bye-bye. Triple R. For Feature Creatures, we're joined by Ricky Lee Erickson, who is isolating in Gisborne with her dog, who might make a cameo. Hi, Ricky Lee. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, Good. excellent. <laughs> what, uh, what's piqued your curiosity uh, where you are? Well, it's not really Gisborne-related, but um, <laughs> this, this month I thought I'd talk about something that I got tagged in on Facebook and Instagram a few times, and uh, it might have popped up on in your feeds, um, but it was – Basically, the what the longest record of the the first record of the longest animal that's been spotted, um, and it it came off the back of a month long expedition off the coast of Ningaloo in northwestern Australia. Um, so it was led by researchers from the Western Australian Museum um, and the Schmidt Ocean Institute, and it was just earlier this year. So it's actually quite recent. Um, it's been making headlines. So. Basically, this was the longest animal that's ever been recorded. It's actually a giant siphonophore, which is a it's, it's a coral. So it's 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 not a coral, but it's related to coral. So it's like a stinging jellyfishy type animal. Um, it was estimated at 150 feet or about 47 meters long. Whoa! Yeah. So the blue whale, for reference, is um, 82 to 105 feet long. So it was a good 50 feet on top of the blue whale. Um, and they're still actually establishing the exact measurement. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the first specimen spotted off WA and potentially the lo- longest organism in the sea. Um, the longest previously known marine creature is actually the lion's main jellyfish. Um, its tentacles can be up to 120 feet long. Um, but basically a siphonophore is a bit of a weird animal. It's actually a gelatinous string composed of a colony of individual zoids, which are genetically identical to each other, and each individual zoid performs a single function for its whole life, whether that's um, stinging prey, digesting food, movement, or reproduction. So it's not one animal per se. It's it's a colony of many animals that work together as a team. And um, this this colony is about as thick as a broomstick and super, super long. And um, they found it at about 630 metres deep. And it was formed in this, if you check it out online, it's a really beautiful video. It's formed in a shape of a galactic swirl. So it appears to be sort of forming a net for other animals. Um, and when they kind of touch their tentacles, they they get zapped by their stinging cells and then they can consume the prey. So, yeah, that was quite cool. Wow. Huh. Does it have a name? Where is it? Like, is it in a tank in an airport hangar somewhere, (laughs) like the shape of water? What's the deal? No, so they didn't collect. They left it as is. It was much too large to to collect. But they did actually attach 
um, a kitchen scrubbing brush to a robot underwater to collect DNA samples of it. Um, so the the yeah, that was I thought quite quite clever. Um, so the 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 expedition um, which happened earlier this year, um, an Australian led it expedition it captured about 181 hours of footage and brought back dna samples of animals at about 4500 meter depths so they were exploring these abyssal habitats that had never before been seen before and um and collected yeah dna from animals that had never been seen before as well um and they they found up to 30 new species and lots and lots of new records new range expansions for wa and for australia and Pretty much this, the goal of this trip was to create a baseline for understanding what species are there so that marine park rangers can know what they are protecting and also detect any future changes. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of like the expedition I did a couple of years ago but a different part of Australia. Hmm. So we know about the length. Is there any intel on the – I mean, and the length is important, but anything on the girth? <laughs> Yeah, so the girth is about as thick as a broomstick. Oh, as okay, as right, and it doesn't expand beyond that. It doesn't it's expand just... beyond that. So it's just like one long string of tentacles. Yeah, it's quite a weird animal, and they, and they actually oh. don't know too much about it, apart from um, especially sort of as a group. There's it's a it's a larger class, but this particular species, they don't know too much about it. Um, well, when they first came across it, it, did did it did it think it was like heaps of different animals or when did you work it it was all just one big swirl i think they worked out straight away it was kind of the one the one animal Um, you can actually go what i would recommend is so the the way that they captured the footage of all the animals that they saw during this expedition was using the an rov sebastian which is a deep sea robot with an incredible camera set up on it um it's it obviously can get up down to 4500 meters and it's usually to use to visually explore and collect samples um and all of their dives that they did are actually available on youtube including the video highlights and you can actually see lifetime reactions and hear the scientists seeing a lot of these animals for the first time um so if you just search um ningaloo canyons or or browse the schmidt ocean account you can actually see um, the footage and the live streaming. And so when they actually were diving at the time, they were live streaming it. So it was in real time, which I think is really cool, and they're still on there so you can see. And the the, the video footage is absolutely incredible. It's so beautiful. And there's so many bright, colourful octopuses, squids, um, these swimming worms, mollusk sea stars, all sorts of things. And, and it's just so special because these habitats are four kilometres down. You... No one's ever laid an eye on them before and we had no idea what to expect that deep. So that's really, really cool. It's like space exploration or something like that. What is is so specifically unique about this area of the world if people don't know it for for, uh, marine biologists to go and explore it looking for these kinds of creatures? Well, the deep sea has always been unexplored and and unknown and most of the deep, the sea floor is deep sea. It's abyssal habitat and... I guess we know sort of what I mean, we we knew this particular area was a hot spot for biodiversity in terms of whales and dolphins, but that's you don't really know anything further than that. And if you want to capture the diversity of of what we actually do have on this planet, then you actually do need to explore those hard to reach places. And it's only in previous few decades that we actually have the technology to allow us to do that. In saying that, these ROVs are extremely expensive and 
and it's really hard to get your hands on them in terms of for science expeditions. But when you do have them, it just gives you so much of a depth of what not only just to collect DNA samples, which is like what we did on my expedition, but to see footage of animals live in the flesh, to see their colours, to see the way they move, to see their behaviour, um, that gives so much more information as well, not just having a physical specimen. And when you preserve things, the specimens, they lose their colour, They you don't know sort of much about their ecology. So that's really special as well. So, yeah. And have you been to the Western Australian Museum, which led the expedition? No, I haven't. But um, the the expedition was led by um, senior research scientist Dr. Nerida Wilson, and she certainly has met quite a few of my colleagues and has an amazing reputation as an um, a, a, just an inspiring scientist. So that would be an, and a lot of the ex, the specimens that they did collect will be on display at the Western Australian Museum when we can travel again. I would <laughs> going but apparently it's a beautiful museum and I would certainly love to visit it one day <laughs> yeah how exciting and, and is this a bit of a shot in the arm for you is it like super is it like Christmas it is yeah and you just see on the videos I've spent a bit of time yesterday looking at them and the scientists are just so excited and actually there's one video where um, one of the other scientists is getting interviewed and she gets a knock on the door and they're like I'm really sorry to interrupt but there's a massive colourful giant squid that's on the camera you should probably come take a look at <laughs> and she's ripping her microphone off and running to the so it's kind of special and it was certainly like it brought back those memories of of when I was on a ship and just that excitement of when a troll came up or when there was something exciting when we would go through schools of thousands and thousands of orange ruffy there's nothing quite like it and and being on a, a ship with um everyone who's just gets excited about these things like you do. It's really special and it's, um, yeah, it's something that's really cool. And, and certainly these these sorts of resources are, are useful for if anyone has kids at home or, or you know, is looking to learn something new, I would recommend going on these YouTube videos because they're really, really cool. Okay. It's a siphonophore, is that how you say it? Yeah, siphonophore. Um, it's, it's in the farm Nidaria, which has got your jellies, corals, that sort of thing. It's just a stringy mass of tentacles and um but yeah it's they're super cool and i honestly didn't know much about them <laughs> and if you search uh, it, ningaloo canyons yeah ningaloo yeah. canyons yeah okay. and it and it'll come up but yeah really really beautiful and i definitely recommend everyone to go and check it out beautiful well uh have fun in gisborne miles away from any water and whatsoever <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, uh cheers <laughs> thank you triple r on fm digital online and via the app uh, apologies if I've missed it, but Daniel, it seems that there is a glaring omission from your news. Okay. And, and that is that um, Cabri has released its marble chocolate again. Um, I can't believe no, no, I, I no, I thought it was. Um, I, I saw it. I thought it was um, too trivial and uh, <laughs> and and a waste of our subscriber and listeners' precious time. <laughs> Well, well, let's talk about it for five for 10 minutes. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so marble chocolate was the swirly one, right? Because I remember yeah, yeah. I, yeah, sorry. It's the one with the like, yeah, the brown and white on top, and then it's got like the um like the praline in the in the middle. Oh, it's got praline. So I in my head it was just swirls and I remember it not tasting any different to normal chocolate, but it obviously does. Yeah, no, it's the, the swirl it's and it's good to eat because you, like, bite the top of it off and then you can get, like, the praline, like, Nutella-type stuff 
in the middle. Some some people would say it tastes a bit like a Ferrero Rocher, um, oh. but it's it's you know since it came out, there's been a, quite a few complaints. There's a news um, article about it. Um, people complaining that it just doesn't taste the same. Um, however, the factory Hobart, where it's made, there's people working in the factory that were there when the original um, marble was made. So, like, it's the same. Is you it know. the same? I'm so sus when they bring products back about whether they jig them. Like, I bought cornflakes for the first time in ages the other day, mm-hmm. and they're different. Like, they're different from when I was a kid. I don't know when this happened, but something's changed. So that I just think you flakes. remember things differently. Do you, or do they make subtle changes and not let you know? Why would they want to change it? Oh, I don't know. That's what I want to know. Why do they change things? I, 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 yeah. I just think, like, here's, they said um, uh, They said the recipe hasn't changed. Oh. And they even said that um, uh, there was a – they even ref- referenced original blocks we've kept in special conditions – Oh. So, I don't know <laughs> what that means. I don't know what those special conditions are. Um, just like um, in the back of the cupboard, all white. Um, <laughs> we've saved it. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Like, um, it's uh, it's back, and but apparently, you know, it's hard to find. Obviously, do you cause... reckon there was a particular demand? Like, I think of so many snacks from when I was a kid that I want them to bring back, right? Mm. And I just marble. I'm not anti that coming back, but it's just not the thing that comes to my mind as the snack from my childhood that I want to be brought back. Like, was there? Oh. Did, have they spoken? Were people demanding marble? The marble come well, back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was a big fan of marble. I'm glad it's back. If I see it, I'll oh. be getting some for sure. It was just fun to eat. Cause yeah, you, anyway, I said that already. Shut up. Um, but what do you want to come back? Well, I always think of things that I wasn't allowed when I was younger. So, can you remember knickknacks? Mm. knickknacks they were like little biscuits but they were flavored you got them in they came in like little snack sized packs that you could take to school and they had salt and vinegar knickknacks uh i think they were uh, baked like baked not fried one of those yeah, yeah, and yeah. they had some cool song in the ad and i just love the idea of a salt and vinegar biscuit in the snack size pack and i really want knickknacks to come back and i don't think they I will think they're, they're probably like posts they're probably not healthy enough or something now i don't know but i mm. it's cuz i wasn't allowed them as a kid i just remember them and i'm like all i want is knickknacks to come back so i can actually buy them for myself now yeah mm. cuz yeah white white nights went away oh my they God. went away about 5 years ago my brother was obsessed with white nights like they were like his go to chocolate bar yeah and look, at the time, did I mourn it? No, I didn't. It, it didn't impact me. I didn't think it was really my treat. But now I've matured and I think maybe I want a bit of mint in my chocolate. Maybe I want confectionery and good breath simultaneously. Maybe I'm a busy working mum and I need to combine those two needs in the one confectionery log. And now I don't have that chance. And the thing with white nights is that they almost always broke your tooth every time you bit into them. You know, they've just been sitting there a little bit too long because no one ever bought them. What? I don't think I ever had a white night. I think it was just the most vanilla of all chocolate brands. You know what I mean? Like it was just the, yeah. I'm not going to, that's the most boring thing you can get and I never bothered with it. But Can but, I Can I just also add that Nougat, I feel, has completely blown up 
and oh. become and become insanely gourmet. So nougat used to be, you know, full of chocolate bars were full of nougat mm. or, nu- or nougat, uh, and and you know, but it was always cheap and whatever. And then now you can spend twenty bucks on nougat. Wow, that's too much. And you who, know, wants once- to, who wants to eat like nougat's not a thing. No one wants to eat it. No, like, stop trying to make love- it cool. No. I used to, I used to love those um, honey nougat logs. And once I lost a tooth in one. <laughs> oh, you took- pulled it out and you saw yes. your tooth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Took a yeah, bite. And, oh, they, the honey nougat logs were good because of everything else, not because of the nougat. Like there was <laughs> yeah, chocolate, there was honey. There was so much yeah. more than the nougat. Um, someone yeah. just texted, and I was actually going to say this. The other thing I want brought back, other than knickknacks, is munch on moncheros. Mon- and someone texted and said, Can you remember moncheros? Oh, absolutely. Munch on moncheros. Yes. You've got your munch on moncheros. Oh, yeah. Polly waffles did come back, didn't they? And they weren't as good. But I think, I think, um, People just remember things differently, and I think Polly Waffles were never that good, and that's why they went away. I, so yeah, I, I, really, I agree. But 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 is was Munch on Muncheros? I I remember the slogan, but it wasn't that. Were they just called Muncheros, or were they called? No, they were just called Muncheros, and they were kind of like really cheesy. Maybe like was there spice in them? They were kind of like CCs, but smaller and better. Yeah, but they were thicker yeah, as well. Yeah, they were thicker, weren't had, they? Had a good body to it. I've, it like, mm. I've been like leaning into classic snacks. Now I'm in isolation. Like I went and bought Promite the other day and I haven't bought it in ages and I loved Promite <laughs> as a kid and it's so underrated. Like you never hear about Promite. You never see it. Vegemite's everywhere. Oh, mate, you come around to my place, you see it. Oh. Got it. Love it. I'm obsessed. Like I can't get enough of it. I'm like Promite and cheese. Like I'm a child at the moment. That's all I'm eating. Are you toasting uh, it, grilling it at all? That's a good trait oh, for you. I haven't done a grill. I th- maybe I do a grill. I'm doing it just on the, you know, where you just do biscuits and you squeeze it together and you have cheese and the uh, little worms come out? Yeah. There was a family friend who claimed recently that uh, the size of twisties are getting fat. Do you reckon? Yeah, and maybe maybe you're you're getting fewer twisties, but they're bigger. Now I've no opinion on this. I think twisty. I, I think anything where after you eat it, your hands are a different color is vile. And 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 if, <laughs> and if you have if you have ke- chemicals on your hands and you're you're leaving marks on things, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> it's just absolutely. I, I don't know. I'm not a snob, but I draw the no. line. Oh, you know what? I can kind of agree because there was always the kids at school who used to eat twisties or burgerings, and they'd let the flavor build up on their fingers until the end, and then they'd be like, "Look, I've got all this flavor to eat," and then they'd eat the bloody flavor off their hands for four minutes. Yeah, come on, uh, we're not savages. Also, if that's what twisties are doing, then I'm on board. Everybody, okay. Surely everybody prefers a fat twisty to a crunchy one. Oh, I would have thought so. And it's it just sort of bucks the trends of uh, confectionery or chips changing, this time for the better. Yeah. Yeah, good on you, twisties. <laughs> Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>